You are listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. Chasers of light, to the purveyors of pictures, to all of you listening and watching from around the world, this is the F11 Photography Podcast. I am your host, Kevin Deal, along with your other host, Mr. Brandon Gorey. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the F11 Photography Podcast. This is our second episode on air, live on YouTube. Not live, but recorded. And you may notice that if you watched episode one, we are wearing the same clothes uh, that we were wearing before, and it's not because we're homeless and we're poor. It's because we record these things in clusters. So it's pretty obvious to those of you who are watching when we do clusters because we're wearing the same clothes. It would be kind of weird if we, like, changed. No, it wouldn't. I think we, <laughs> I think we should start doing that. You think we should just start changing? Yeah, cause I didn't even think about that because, like, when we used to record on... Uh... Hey, thanks. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, I'm like, oh, okay, we're about All to right. be demonetized. So now, now look at me. I'm not poor. Oh, now, now we're not poor. There we go. Now I'm a little cold. I don't know why. Uh, there we go. You All right. Wait, 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 wait. You're telling me you wear two shirts? Uh, when I wear a soccer jersey, yes. So. Oh. Do you do you get do you get like gnarly bo when you wear just the soccer jersey? Because I do. Uh, I don't know because I wear two shirts. <laughs> Great, great right. question that I don't know the answer to. Yeah, so we didn't record three episodes in the same day. This is a new episode. Uh, we recorded a different day, and I'm a different person. Hold on, let, let me see. Yeah, yeah, just... we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna like hypnotize everybody, yeah. right? Yeah. Yes. Hold on, uh, there we go. We are back to you live. We are going to explore the latest in ambient jungle in Bristol. I don't know what you, I don't know what you mean by that. But anyway, I, I look like a DJ from the '90s. Is what I'm trying to say, Kevin. Fair enough. Yeah. If you are listening on Apple, Spotify, or whatever, welcome. Uh, if you could support us by also subscribing to this channel on YouTube, that would be great. Our eventual goal is to monetize here. So yeah, it would be nice to make a little bit of money when you guys uh, watch or listen to this pod. It'd be pretty cool, actually. Make so. a couple burner accounts. Yeah. You know, I mean, get, yeah, get exactly. your friends and family to watch our episodes. We don't censor anything, so it's it's very inviting. Very yeah, inviting. So I have a YouTube channel, and I have to be kind of straight and narrow on that because it's more about tips, techniques, tutorials, and gear reviews, and all that. And here, I feel like I can be a little more laid back and uh, you know, unveil a side of myself that I don't get to unveil on my YouTube app, on my YouTube channels. Uh, channel singular, yeah. and uh, you kind of are the well. You're, you're kind of the same way. You're a little more straight and narrow. He has a YouTube channel as well. Very, um, very inactive on it, but yes, yes. So uh, I feel like I can be a little more. Well, not a little more. A lot more uncensored on on. You know, it's funny. I feel a little bit more reserved on this podcast than I do elsewhere for some reason. I'm the I'm kind of the opposite. Yeah, well, whatever. We have two different personalities. So yeah. I'm, I I drop the f bombs on here. I don't drop the f bombs on my my uh, my gear review channel. So I'm on Kevin Deal Photography, which I'll leave a link in the description below. Subscribe there too if you uh, if you like both. Yes. So, yeah, subscribe absolutely. to Brandon. So subscribe to me. It's Brandon and, Gorey, and uh, I talk a lot about film, uh, film tips, and I review film cameras. Very affordable, very approachable film cameras. Yes. Yes. And. This is our second episode on YouTube, and it's great to be on both YouTube and in the podcast world because maybe you start watching this on your phone or you start watching it on your laptop and then you get called into work or whatever and you got to go do your commute. You can just download this same episode on whatever you listen to, Spotify, Apple, and then you can go, oh, I was about 30 minutes in. I'll start about 30 minutes in and you can continue the episode on a different platform. So Yes, or if you have YouTube Premium, you're obviously going to be able to turn your phone off and continue in your Apple AirPods or wherever you are. Yeah, exactly. So it's good to be on both. Uh, as we said in our first episode, we did want to uh, do more visual stuff, and we're going to do that here. And we're going to try to be descriptive when we show things because we don't want to, uh, you know, alienate the uh, the listener. We, we don't we don't want we don't want them to go ah we don't know what's going on, Kevin. So 
We're going to do our best. Give us a little grace. We're going to get better at that. I mean, you may not want to alienate the listener. I say join the YouTube crowd, you know? Like, I mean, hey, sometimes people got to go to work, you know? so Sometimes they do. Yeah. So, uh, But anyway, so today's episode, we are going to be talking about cinema uh, because Brandon and I, when we first met, we had a uh we we had a shared love for cinema it's probably what made us pick up our cameras in the first place and so in today's episode we're going to talk about the things that made us want to pick up a camera the movies that made us want to pick up a camera and movies that have come out since we've picked up a camera that make us continue to want to keep shooting because i know a lot of you who are watching uh this or listening to this are like us, and you saw a movie that floored you, and you're like, "My gosh, I need, I need to get a camera." And it's, and I'm more of a stills photographer than a videographer, but cinema still influences my stills. So I would say I, that was great. I like yeah. that. Yeah, by all means, um, it's it's actually interesting. Is when Kevin and I formulated this episode, uh, we obviously went and did our research. We went and like kind of refreshed the the movies that we like, scenes that we like, and. It was it was interesting because I found that a lot of the movies that I in, enjoyed and that uh, have influenced me, um, a lot of a lot of the framing in and of themselves in different scenes, um, characters' inflections, the the acting, and and the composition is you could take stills from these movies and they, I, I wouldn't be surprised if I saw them these these stills on the walls of MoMA, you know, uh, taken on Portrait Four Hundred or the respective Kodachrome in the '60s and stuff like that. So, um, it's, it's very interesting. I, I, I also had to weed out some films as well because some films inspire me to go shoot, but there's not really like any frames you can pull from the, from the movie itself where it's like, Oh, like that's a great shot. It's kind of like more of like a compelling, like narrative. Like I, I find the narrative more interesting than I do the, the composition. And so that's like, it's inspiration in that way, which is interesting. Well, I think, uh, today's episode is a perfect example of uh, why we're on YouTube uh, now, because you can enjoy this episode if you're listening in your car, you know, in your AirPods or whatever, but you can take it to that next level, that next dimension, because we're going to be able to show you things. I'm not going to have video examples of every episode. I'm going to just talk about how certain episodes help me and influence me. I'm not going to have examples for everything. Um, but it's going to be a great hybrid. It's going to be a great test. And this is not an episode we could have done in season one, which, by the way, we are in season two, episode two now. Uh, and so let's listen to a word from our sponsor. Harness the power of artificial intelligence with Luminar Neo. Artificial intelligence is the buzzword in the photography industry right now. It's becoming so widely used in our industry, it's hard to tell when it's hype and when it's actually an effective tool. Luminar Neo actually uses AI for good by giving you easy to use modules that are powerful and improve your photography. And now they're happy to announce the introduction of Generace, which is their generative AI fill. What is Generace? It's a smart personal assistant that will help you remove unwanted distractions from your image. Unlike a standard erase tool, it leverages the power of AI to fill the gaps with textures and other elements to match the surrounding area. You'll easily get realistic results because Generace is analyzing your photographs to make sure that the results look realistic, mimicking patterns and objects that it sees. In addition to other powerful modules like Relight, Powerline Removal, and AI Masking, Luminar Neo is on the cutting edge of artificial intelligence, but it's not just a plugin for Photoshop. You can actually use it as a standalone program with a catalog organizer and all that. It also has presets. Use the code Kevin10 at checkout or check out the link in this podcast to get 10% off your copy of Luminar Neo today. This is Jason Berkman, and you're listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. I love his voice. His voice is awesome. <laughs> Welcome back. Uh, we are doing the episode today on cinema. So I want to talk about what is, in my opinion, like required, and that's Lawrence of Arabia. Absolutely. If you are 
a film student and you want to study uh, cinematography, this is the movie. Like, I am an environmental portrait photographer, and when you look at these shots, everything, the golden rule, the rule of thirds, the composition, um, I'm sure they have Fibonacci sequence in here. They have everything in here, but if you're an environmental portrait photographer and you're listening or watching this podcast and you want to be inspired, I, I highly recommend you go check out uh, Lawrence of Arabia. It was made in like, I think, 1962. It is probably and arguably the greatest piece of cinematography of all time as far as the meticulous planning for all these shots, uh, the fact that they um, just like everything is the scale, the sense of scale. One of the things that I love to do as an environmental portrait photographer, yes, I like to take headshots. Yes, I like to take three-quarter body shots and all that. But something that I do in my work is that I like to do scale shots. I like to show somebody as super tiny in a very large open space. I love negative space, whether that space is filled or it's just a white backdrop. But this movie right here, Lawrence of Arabia, is uh, required, man. It's, it's awesome. When you go see Star Wars and you see that that shot of Luke Skywalker and he's got the binoculars and you see the two suns and you have that beautiful sunset, uh, this was all inspired by Lawrence of Arabia. The cinematography on this is absolutely, in my opinion, for a spoken word film in at least American cinema, is the greatest film of all time for cinematography, especially considering the fact that this movie is now, what, 61 years old? I mean, it's old. And it's it's just a classic, man. You really can't go wrong with it. And it, it just, the soundtrack too is amazing. Something I find interesting about um, movies in that era is in, in the 60s and the 50s when color was coming out, like it wasn't, <clears throat> of course, you had the guys in Hollywood and they're just like, oh, we need to make like, we, we, we want this return. Like, you know, we're, we're going to make this movie. We want this to be the best movie because we want like fucking crazy returns. But as an art form, cinema is an art form that combined painting with, um, with, with theater. It was a move away from theater. And so in the, in the twenties and thirties, it was kind of a clash and, and, People viewed cinema as not only like a narrative, not only like a like a money generating thing, but also as an art form. And so they explored it as an art form. They took compositional uh, compositional theory from paintings. They took compositional theory from the old masters of the nineteenth, uh, seventeenth, sixteenth century. And so, of course, in the sixties, when we had an explosion of fantastic cinema from from uh, you know Russia. Um, from the U.S., obviously, you had the French New Wave, you had the Czech New Wave, you had all this stuff. We got some incredible films. And so saying that, I want to I talk about one of my next favorite films that has inspired a lot of my cinematography itself, and that is uh, Stalker by Andrei Tarkovsky. Now, something I like about this film is uh, there's no wasted space. Every, every frame is well-balanced, and there's an intent behind all of it. The lighting is incredible, and Tarkovsky himself is, is a very rigid and very technically adept director. Um, he, his static shots as well as his dynamic shots are incredibly moving. And uh, like I said earlier, with no wasted space, it's very inspiring because it's, it's taught me how to utilize space really well. It's, it's um, inspired me to pick up the camera and go wider as you can see here, as, as he's zooming out, uh, there's no, there's no real waste of space and his framing is absolutely immaculate. His lighting is absolutely immaculate. His, his subject to environment juxtaposition is incredible. Like right here, you know, kind of giving that sci-fi nuance. Um, I believe this was like an old grain factory that they, they found in the, in the middle of Russia and they just went with it. Um, so Tarkovsky is often regarded as the best cinematographer to come out of Russia. He's, in the way he uses space and symmetry is very similar to Kubrick. And personally, I just find it incredibly inspiring. Yeah, I, I, the work on that is incredible. Um, I also want to keep it on the older tip here, which is Citizen Kane. Uh, you check out this shot right here. What's unique about this shot, and I'm, I'm going to using it as a freeze frame, as photographers, we're taught you, uh, you use depth of field to isolate, right? 
Well, in this shot right here, they're not using depth of field to isolate. This is a deep depth of field. So they're not shooting at like T because it's T stops in cinema. They're not shooting at like T 2.8 or something like that. This is probably like T 16 or something like that. It is everything that you need to see is in focus. You have the parents giving their child away. You have the guy taking the child and then you have the child uh, innocently playing outside with absolutely no idea that they're about to be given away. And what I love about that shot is there's that degree of separation, you know, um, not only like, like the way this is composed is you're looking through a window into the child's life. You're not seeing it from the child's perspective. You're seeing it from the adult perspective. Everyone's in that same room. It's that same zone. And the child's life is a very small, insignificant window. And that's kind of like the premise of, of the cinematic and the, and the narrative relationship to the child. Yeah, another thing that's cool about uh, Citizen Kane is the the depth of or the, the yeah the not just the depth of field but the uh, what's the word I'm looking for the dynamic range. There's a, there's very little dynamic range in this movie, and you know as photographers we're, we're we freak out about things like dynamic range. There's some scenes in there that only have five six stops of dynamic range, and we we freak out over cameras that have like twelve to fourteen stops of dynamic range, and you know it's regarded as one of the greatest movies of all time. And so I think that uh, that's, uh, that's something to be learned from that. It's, it's, it's more about your idea that matters. And, and you know, you don't need things to be at F1.2 or T1 point whatever uh, in the cinema world to isolate things. Uh, another thing that uh, Citizen Kane did is everybody borrowed from, from it. Raiders of the Lost borrowed from it. And the movie we're about to talk about next also borrowed from it in some of the scenes. And uh, that's something that Brandon is going to talk about. So – one of my favorite movies that basically inspires world building, um, it inspires color grading, and it kind of like inspires like intricate lighting is Blade Runner here, as you can see. Um, when I when I go to shoot a photo series and when I go to look at how I want to light something um, or how I want to create a sort of noir with harsher light um, and even shooting direct light is I look at uh, Blade Runner here. They often they often change between tight shots, wide shots, and medium shots, um, and they create a sense of what the world is. See, like here, there's a whole shot dedicated to this machine, which we don't know exactly what it is, but it's there's an organic, you know, element to that machine showing the eye. Um, a lot of what I like about Blade Runner is the juxtaposition of the synthetic with the organic, and how that uh, how that blends so well. It is the infusion of technology with the organic matter, and it's a subject matter that I like to explore in my own work. And it, there's there's too much to say about about Blade Runner because the way it's shot, um, there's a lot of technical as, technical aspects. We could do a whole episode about. Yeah, we really could, but I kind of just wanted to focus on uh, the world building and uh, the juxtaposition of technology with orga uh, organic human. <laughs> I'm losing it. Humanism. Well, that particular movie to me, um, the rain, the smoke, the the color temperatures it was shot at, the teal and orange, of course, uh, shots through Venetian blinds, um, shadows are more blue than black. The color grading on it is insane. And they carried it over, by the way, into 2049. I think that 2049 took that to a whole new level. Uh, but... Uh, I guess there's two things that I want to take away from Blade Runner, uh, a common theme that I do in both color and in black and white. And uh, in color, uh, well, just in general, and with lenses, uh, obviously with color, I love the way that I like, I like to go in to shadows sometimes and I like to, to make them appear more blue. That's definitely something that I took from Blade Runner. I love shooting through shadow. I love the uh, through, through smoke. I love juxtaposition. All of that is stuff that Blade Runner taught me. Uh, I love using anamorphic lenses. We're going to get more into anamorphic lenses uh, later in this episode because, to me, uh, when I one one thing that I noticed when I started going through all my favorite movies was that they almost all, uh, at least all the ones from you know the nineteen seventies onward, use anamorphic lenses. Now back then they didn't have a word for it because. Uh, and the word anamorphic didn't come around until they started converting things over to DVDs and all that. Um, it was just the, the format it was shot in. But uh, another word that uh, absolutely works for me is noir. And if you look at some of my black and white work, it is noir. And I want to talk about one of my favorite movies of all time that was shot in noir. And that is uh, Austin's own Robert Rodriguez, 
Sin City. I absolutely love the way that this film was shot, the black and white. And then they would do uh, they would do selective color in it. I don't use selective color. I don't take that from it. But gosh, Mickey Rourke, like, dude, like that hardness, that sharpness, that contrast just is insane in this movie. And uh, to this day, I use this. Oh, 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 oh. Might have to blur that out. <laughs> uh, might have to blur that out. But uh, to this day, this movie is an absolute masterpiece in cinematography. I love those low shots. Just everything is so crisp in this movie. And so, uh, yeah, this I, is my favorite film. And we're going to have to blur out the tits. I've never <laughs> seen this movie. I'm really enjoying this. The You've never seen Sin City? No, the composition's incredible. Holy shit, this movie is... It looks... I, I don't like Robert Rodriguez for a, a number of reasons because he's super cheesy, but... It, Not the, the dude. This movie is insane. You got to see it. Wild. It almost looks like um, it looks like Zack Snyder's work. Like you know, like Watchmen and uh, Three Hundred. It's got that stylized like specular highlights where there's like no need it's, for them to be there. It is. It is one of the coolest movies. And you know, it it does. It, I would I would say probably borrows from Blade Runner in the sense that there's lots of. Uh, there's, there's lots of uh, snow, rain falling, tons of rain, just things getting in, fr- in front of the shots. The blood is just insane in this movie. Uh, look at that, dude. I mean, that just looks insane. So, uh, But yes, Sin City, if you want to know <laughs> where so I get cool. – I actually have uh, inside Capture One, which is my raw editor. I actually use, uh, I actually use some uh, starting points of noir. And yeah, you got to see that one, man. It's it's a it's a classic. That's wild. But um, uh, let's move on to one of your <laughs> favorites that you love. So, kind of moving away from uh, the, the the framing aspect. I'm, well, I mean, I get, there's so much there's so much technical stuff that transfers from cinema to photography that it's, it's hard to isolate them. But one movie that I grew up on that I, I continue to watch maybe once or twice a year is Guy Ritchie's Snatch. And I kind of want to preface this film. It's an absolute, it's an absolute masterpiece. It's a masterpiece. I love it. I oh love Guy God. Ritchie and I love Snatch. I think that is what, you like Dags? Yeah. So, <laughs> so like, okay. So he grades his films um, in an interesting way. Um, he kind of, he leans all the way to one color. So he won't split, uh, he won't split between like teal and orange or something like that. He'll kind of just go warmer, greener, bluer, redder, and that kind of thing. And so, um, I want to talk about one specific scene here that that inspired me to create. Um, well, I'm going to talk about it first uh, to to create kind of funny situations, like juxtaposing situations. And this is something that Guy Ritchie is known for. He's very theatrical. He's very over the top with how he does his films and how he builds his characters and his archetypes. So, if you will, um, we've got a killer on a couch, and he's and he's sitting between two two women like. Um, uh, twins, identical twins in this movie. And this, this specific shot right here is it's absolutely useless. Like it, it's, it's only function is to, it is just comedic relief. And there aren't a lot of shots like this in his films, but Guy Ritchie sneaks them in. And this frame in and of itself, I think is absolutely fantastic. And then moving on from this frame, you, you start getting into like the more technical aspects of the film. Obviously the grading is fantastic. It's like Kodachrome. Um, but I love these tight shots. I love the way he, you know, he introduces new parts of the film, and I, it's it's just gorgeous. But <laughs> yours <laughs> says replica. Mine says Desert Eagle. Point five zero. Mincy faggot balls. Yes, that was a. Uh... Yes, that was an awesome movie, man. Uh, I love. Oh, right there. That's that's th- the scene. That's okay. This is what I wanted to talk about framing wise, is because that's how you use a wide angle. Yes, like that is fantastic. I I love Guy Ritchie's wide angle shots. There you go. You got the face coming in. It's dynamic. You got a you got a quick focus rack from from that one guy's face to to this dude's face. Focus yeah. rack again. Really great cinematography. Yeah, there. you're just bouncing from all corners of the frame based on what the actors are doing. It's absolutely fantastic, and it's that kind of it's that kind of fun, it's that kind of playfulness that um, inspires me to shoot and create narratives in my work. Absolutely. Well, Guy Ritchie, I I think awesome work. And of course, we're we're saying the directors, but the cinematographers are the ones who who actually are the heroes here. Yeah. So. Uh, Let's talk about. Let me find it. Because uh, I want. I want to give credit. I want to give credit to the name. Um, Tim Maurice Jones did the cinematography for uh, Snatch, and I also want to shout out one of my favorite cinematographers, uh, Sven Nickvist. 
He did a lot of work with Ingmar Bergman and Tarkovsky, and he's just one of the heaviest hitting uh, cinematographers of the 60s and 70s, in my personal opinion. Well, I think for the next one, uh, we're going to have to uh, praise someone from Italy, Vittorio Storaro. I think Apocalypse Now is one of the most insane movies I've ever seen. Also I shot al- Anamorphic. I almost, I almost threw that on my list. <laughs> one of the things that yes. stood out to me the most about this film is when I saw it, like I saw it in the 90s because that's when I grew up. I'm an 80s baby and I saw it in the 90s. It obviously came out in the 70s. And one of the things that's crazy about it is the film is so crisp and so amazingly shot. You could have told me it was shot in the 90s. Like, it is such a modern-looking film for its time. And the color grading is insane. The anamorphic shots are insane. The fact that they went up in that helicopter, the the the, the color science, um, when they're surfing on the beach and they pop the smoke, they had the yellow and the purple together. Like, here's the scene right here. Everything is beautiful. And look at that dynamic range with the napalm going off. I mean, there's no clipped highlights. I mean, everything. I don't know what kind of filters they were using on this, but they absolutely... They changed the aperture live for that shot. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, it was... They did an insane... And look look at... I mean, just everything on here. Uh, I will tell you that uh, one of the cool things about his his shooting style is uh, he likes to use one harsh light source. I think the scene where Marlon Brando is just... Oh, oh, here. Like, like the stuff... Stuff where they have like a, a spotlight moving around. Yeah. It creates so much uh so much havoc in the scenes. And but going back to the Marlon Brando scene, which will come up here in a minute and I'll I'll bring it up. But the Marlon Brando scenes, the 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 singular light on Marlon Brando <laughs> makes him ten thousand times more scary than any of his acting. So this whole like just this kind of stuff, this is what I'm talking about, where you see one light hitting, you see a little bit of a rim, you can see the facial structures, uh just absolutely insane but the marlon brando scene i'm just gonna i'm just gonna find it real quick because i keep talking about it and it hasn't come up yet but the marlon brando scene right there i believe yes uh, what, what, like here's another example of it as as martin sheen is is coming up on everything and he's covered in the mud and look you can see those nice ovals the ovals of the anamorphic lenses and you see flares going off i mean just dude like this is like absolutely insanity Just opposing surfboards with a war zone well th- there's there's good there's good reason behind that because Incredible what it decision. was was uh one of the reasons why this is such a great story is the guys in the movie were not fighting to win the war they were fighting because they wanted to feel what it felt like to be home and what did they do at home they surfed. Uh, why did they have the R&R in the redo version with the Playboy bunnies that come out? Because they wanted the R&R. That felt like home. And so they were able to do that. And that's one of the reasons why Francis Ford Coppola is such a great storyteller. I don't have time to get into The Godfather, but I mean, come on. <laughs> this this scene right yeah. here with the smoke coming off is one of the most iconic scenes in the history of cinema. Uh, when you get into the scene with Marlon Brenda, this is the scene I was talking about. This whole scene is insane where you just see his bald head. Of course, he was really, really fat at this point. So you just wanted to do the head. But no, Apocalypse Now, once again, shot anamorphic. It's a recurring theme uh, that we are going to talk about today. And just, I, I mean, come on, film. man. The freaking color, the freaking yeah. light moving in and out of shadows. This is something that inspires me to pick up a camera. And if you go look at my work and you see some of my hard light work, it is absolutely stolen from Storino. Yeah. Vittorio. Vittorio. Oh, gosh. That guy. Uh, uh, Storaro. I'm sorry. Vittorio Storaro. One of the greatest cinematographers of all time. Props. Yeah. I tell you what. It's um, – I, I – what – so Apocalypse Now is based off of the book Heart of Darkness. I don't know if you've ever read it, um, exploring the, the savage nature in human beings. And it and as the, the movie begins in a very domestic environment, about as domestic as it gets, as a man, you know, doing his creature comforts. And, you know, this is narrative based, obviously. And it devolves into the most savage it can get, which is... Um, a vast exploration of heart of darkness. And I just, I just love the, I I love how it progresses in that way. Yes. Yes. And by the way, uh, hopefully uh, you should know by now is that there are a shitload of spoilers. So if you haven't seen a movie we're talking about, (laughs) just skip if we go to it and it's something that's on your your list. Cause uh, I, one of the scenes I'm going to talk about later today is going to be like the ending of a movie because it's the peak to it. Yeah. Uh, So, 
So yes, uh, Apocalypse Now. Uh, just just some honorable mentions I want to talk about while you're bringing up the next one. Uh, I think Paul Thomas Anderson. I think Boogie Nights is one of the most. I mean, obviously the the subject matter is about pornography, but it, and, and the story is about it's not it's not really a story about pornography as much as it is a story about how everybody in that movie is kind of a loser, you know. But it's really good storytelling. I think some of the cinematography in Boogie Nights is amazing. Obviously, there will be blood. I mean, come on, that is one of the greatest movies ever to come out. I'm a big fan of that. I'm just going to do shout outs while you bring something else up. Uh, Christopher Nolan, if we're talking about modern uh, cinematography, Inception is insane. A lot of that was uh, built sets that was not uh, a CGI, some of it. Some of it was CGI, but some of it was built sets. And that's something that is uh, important to note is that a lot of the movies that you see, like Blade Runner 2049, a lot of the stuff you think is CGI is actually sets that were built, miniature sets that were built that they shot, and then they used lights on. Um, Inception has that. Uh, a lot of the stuff is uh, real, like Interstellar had some sets. Uh, Dunkirk, as we're talking about Christopher Nolan, oh, some gosh. of the best war scenes ever. Uh, Quentin Tarantino actually said the scene where the guy, like the, the explosions coming toward him and his head's down is one of the greatest scenes, if not the greatest war scene ever filmed. So, uh, but the composition, like drawing your eye toward that explosion about to hit the guy, hit the main character is just incredible. Incredible cinematography. I haven't seen Dunkirk, but that sounds fantastic. Oh my God. Dunkirk <laughs> is like... It's really intense. Like you got to go see that one for sure. Yeah. So. Well, yeah. Move, moving toward um, movies that have inspired me recently, I've kind of gone through what what has kind of like ignited the love for framing and everything. Um, Wong Kar Wai's Fallen Angels. Now, a lot of a lot of the stuff we also talked about is is very uh, narrative dependent, based on the actor, based on the lighting, based on. Um, based on the framing. And here I want to toss all that to the wayside and I want to talk about mood building. Why? Because Fallen Angels was shot entirely on what they believe to be a six millimeter lens by cinematographer Danny Boyle in Hong Kong. And this whole film is is it's it's like a dream sequence of a mood in in the in the lower uh, crime quarters of Hong Kong's uh, 90s era. And so if we, move on over here. This is Fallen Angels. It's shot entirely on a wide-angle lens, as you can see, um, heavily into the pro-mist filters, and the entire sequence of the film is shot on what seems to be incredibly low budget. It's mostly handy cams. The shakiness is absolutely wild, and the imperfection of it is its own charm. It tells the story, not technically, but with motion, with constant motion and constant light. Holy chromatic aberration, Batman. <laughs> the oh, highlights are just like, yeah. It is It is fantastic. I went and saw this at Alamo Draft House on the big screen, and it blew my mind. And it's so low budget that there's there's some scenes in here where they did slow-mo, and I don't know if this was a stylistic choice or a budget choice, but they didn't have... Uh, they didn't have the lighting and they didn't have uh, the, the speed of film to actually capture a slow motion sequence at night. So what they did is they had to, uh, they had to change the shutter speed and cut it in half and capture uh, like half frames. So 12 frames a second. <laughs> and it's just, it's just phenomenal that that's a stylistic choice. And as you can see, the colors are insane. The grading is is very. It's just incredibly rich. It might be playing over again. And well, also, how it, how does this inspire your work though? It inspires my work by creating a mood um, that's not incredibly incredibly perfect. Um, I'm a very technical guy. I'm a very technical shooter usually, but this use of greens and blues is at first for my own work very jarring, but um, it's something that I'd like to get used to. Um, so like. I like how Wong Kar Wai uses the entire frame to to just it's like a microscopic view of of filth of the human experience. This guy's bloodied, smoking a cigarette. It's very personal. It's very interpersonal. You're right there into their thoughts. You're you're in the room with them, and the camera is quite literally pressed up against their face. So it just it just gives this sense of of unavoidable uh, humanity. You can't escape it. You can't have distance from the human experience. It's just so raw and real. And I find that incredibly appealing in my own work. That looks awesome. I have not seen it yet. Um, a movie that's entirely shot and a wide angle. That sounds super appealing to me. I want to check that out. You should. Yes. Yeah. That that's awesome. 
uh, what I love about, I love this kind of stays on a theme I'm about to talk about, which is imperfections. So sometimes you can use a lens as imperfection to, um, to help elevate something. And uh, I would argue that probably my top five movie for sure of the 1990s does this at its peak, and that is Michael Mann's classic Heat. Heat is absolutely insane. I love that movie. Uh, yeah. Not just, not just. The, I mean, the cinematography is good, but the attention to detail. There's a scene in there where they rob a bank and they leave the bank, and the attention to detail for how they cover fire, a uh, retreat cover fire, is so by the book that the United States military actually makes their new uh, recruits watch that movie to say, "This is how you retreat uh, with with fire. This is how you get out of a, out of an ambush." This is Incredible. yeah, and because he hired like a special forces guy to do that. And, and, uh, but to my point of, uh, the imperfections. So we've been talking about anamorphic lenses and one of the imperfections of anamorphic lenses is they have an insane amount of chromatic aberration, an insane amount of lens flaring. If you've ever seen a JJ Abrams movie and you see that blue line come across your screen, that's usually a dead giveaway that they're using an anamorphic lens. The other dead giveaway is that on the outside of the frame, instead of the bouquet balls being circular, they're oval shaped. And so uh, you can see in this final scene, which is, this is this is a spoiler alert, you see Al Pacino, you see that oval right there? That's your, that there it is. And this scene is just so brilliant because they're using the airport landing lights right here. Watch this. You see right here as he as he as he crowns the corner. Look at okay, look at all this like insane imperfection and chromatic aberration. Look at how soft De Niro is in this scene. That is like peak anamorphic lens, boom. And just you see like the imperfections of this anamorphic lens, the chromatic aberrations and everything from those airport landing lights, that softness, this kind of bluish hue in the in the whites. That is like peak anamorphic uh, characteristics. And like that whole scene, like you also hear uh, Moby, God moving over the face of the waters playing in the background. Like that whole scene is just uh, the cinematographer, the coordination between Michael Mann, the cinematography, the, the, the audio. It is all like it all leads up to this. Uh, this just this chaos, this 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 peak of the movie. And, uh, you know, they used. Like, like I said, one of the imperfections of an anamorphic lens to add to, to elevate to that scene. Because like I said, those blown out highlights and all that chromatic aberration, I think like makes heat visually happen. Uh, and it's just like, here it is. It's all, it's all coming to a head and it's all exploding at this one point in time uh, where the, the climax of the movie happens. And so uh, heat is like, there's, there's so many other reasons why that movie is so amazing, but I just wanted to highlight that one scene because that that scene right there is one of the biggest reasons why I love to shoot with anamorphic lenses sometimes. I just love it. And I have a I have a project I'm working on right now. I'm I'm I've been watching so much anamorphic stuff lately. I actually think I'm just gonna shoot the whole thing in anamorphic and it's that um a project I'm doing with the the the, the diving helmet. Yes. I wanna shoot it in a wide format and so I think I'm gonna probably shoot it anamorphic. Dude, that'd be amazing. I I don't know very much about anamorphic lenses, so I if you see me, oh sorry, if you see me like not like paying attention to the camera, I'm just very much like okay, <laughs> like because I I haven't seen heat. It, oh my god, you got to see I heat. Know, oh god, I, that is that is required. Like like if you're a cinema buff and you want to like just drool at cinematography for three hours, go watch heat. It is so fucking good. I know, I know. I almost watched it last night. I watched uh, Prisoners with Jake Gyllenhaal and Hugh Jackman instead. As of right now, on the, in the recording date of this pod, it's on Netflix. It's all, Heat is on Netflix. It's also for free on YouTube right now with ads. So if you're watching this and you don't have your parents' password for Netflix because they're cracking down on that shit, you can watch Heat right now in HD with ads. So just throwing that out there. It's free. I love that. Something, uh, a movie that I stumbled upon recently that really inspired me is a Japanese film. It's called The Cure by Kiyoshi Kurosawa. So it's not like The Cure, like Robert Smith going, dude, Robert Smith, I, I can't, like, dude's weird, man. Um, <laughs> so, so what I liked about this film is uh, obviously the cinematography is great. Um, I like that. Um, but something that inspired me as a film photographer, as a film shooter, is you'll notice that it doesn't. It doesn't have that classic um, Vision 3T look to it. 
it's very it's very blended in with the pinks and the the greens and the whites are very cool like it, it's a cooler film stock uh, now i don't know if this was or was not shot on vision uh that might make me sound like an idiot that's all f well and good but it just it, the, the the tones and the way that it's lit and the uh the the colors coming through just they scream fuji to me look at that it's it's such a it's such a soft gentle blue and green uh, um, almost everywhere you know besides the obvious like yellows and, and browns and what people are wearing um, another thing I like about this is just uh, the the scenes and how they kind of fill the frames are they're very very interesting like obviously like the lighter there and I mean this is moving pretty quickly but I just love the way kind of like your citizen kind of like your citizen Kane here is um, how they just have the focus on on one person and, and there's stuff going on in the background. Now, there's a lot of information here, like in this scene in how like, okay, you've got your protagonist, he's in focus right there. And in the background, even though he's out of focus, there's still a lot of information there. And it, it, it's funny is that the dynamic of the scene, the tension and the relationship of, of, of the scene is between those two subjects and the X on the wall. And so uh, it's inspired me to kind of move more towards um, deliberately creating scenes and taking a lot more time to set up um, a narrative relationship between multiple subjects um, in frame instead of shooting one person in frame and kind of like focusing on the light. Um, I'm just, I'm just going to see if there's anything, anything else here that's like kind of crazy. Um, again, like super, super interesting, very minimal. Uh, I just, I love, I love scenes like this where there's a little bit of action. You don't necessarily know what the subject is doing, but it's incredibly well lit. You've got almost kind of like a vignetting of, of the scene. The colors are incredibly balanced and cool. Not so much that it's like a statement like Guy Ritchie, but I, I don't know. I, I just like to soak this kind of thing in, these, these colors, you know, the chair place where it is. It's an intentionally balanced shot, and they they made sure that the bed and the chair is, is, is you know, in harmony. And the only chaos in this scene is from this one guy moving about the space just creating absolute havoc when everything else is balanced and i find that just tantalizing that's awesome um i'm gonna do a shout out without video examples just because i think i can talk about this and most people have seen these movies but martin scorsese uh, i think martin scorsese is the king of the uh you know take the rolling stones or take devo or take some modern music instead of a film score and put a montage together of it that's storytelling so like you think about in the movie casino when sam ralstein's walking through the casino and you have all the music playing or just uh you know when he and uh, sharon stone's character are having issues like the 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 ability to take beautiful cinematography and piece it together with like a really common song, whether it's a Fleetwood Mac or something like that. Scorsese absolutely is the master class in that. Uh, I think Tarantino borrows from that. Uh, he, he learned it from Scorsese. I'm probably putting words in his mouth, but I'm probably also not wrong. Um, and so uh, absolutely love that about Scorsese. And remember, this episode is about what inspires us to pick up a camera. And even though the cinematography is obviously fantastic in all of his movies, uh, usually it's the, the sound that goes with it. The, the, the marriage of music to visuals, that inspires me to go pick up my camera because I'm a musician and uh, that's my background. And I love the fact that Scorsese is so good at doing that. And he's such a great storyteller. He does such a great job of uh, developing characters. But I wanted to give Scorsese a bit of a shout out before I go into my next uh, one, which this one may take a while and I am unapologetic, unapologetic about it. And that is Quentin Tarantino. He is, uh, you can say he's an asshole, you can say you don't like the guy, but you cannot deny the fact that his movies, he, he, to me, he's like the DJ shadow of, <laughs> of, of directors because he can take, he, he borrows, he absolutely borrows and he's unapologetic about it. He will borrow things from other movies and bring them into his. He'll take a spaghetti Western and he'll marry it to Kung Fu and samurai culture like he did in Kill Bill, which to me, I think as, I mean, first and foremost, let's talk about Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction, when I saw it in the theater, I was like, holy shit, you can't even, you can do this with a movie? Like you can just take it and tell it and, you know, take it and, and uh, put it out of order. And then Tarantino kind of builds an entire world around it, uh, and he, you know, he's a video store nerd. That's why I say he's like DJ Shadow because Quentin. If you if you're not familiar with DJ Shadow, DJ Shadow uh, 
pushed the limits of sampling in the in the mid to late 1990s. Like he he took other people's songs and made songs out of it. Like he would sample uh, pitch, and you know it's one thing to to beat match, but if you can take pitch and and, and get harmonies to work well together of other people's songs, he did that, and that was what. That's what he revolutionized. And Tarantino is sort of a, hey, I'm going to, there's this thing I like in this, um, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie. I'm going to pull it in. You know, obviously you see like the ending of uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. <laughs> like, clearly, <laughs> you know, like, like he's clearly influenced. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, if you if you don't like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it's because you watch Transformers and all those other movies. And that's the, the peak of like how much you like cinema. And there's nothing wrong with that. But that's why you don't like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. If you don't understand that that movie was a love letter, not only to the 1960s, the summer of 1969, but to old Hollywood and the unrecognized people in Hollywood that made Hollywood happen. It's really easy to follow that movie. I love that film. Yeah, that film was so good. I saw that film in 70 millimeter. I think it was in 70 millimeter. I know it was in a film of stock of some kind. Alamo. And I just sat there and was just like, dude, like this is amazing. And the character development. So like, you know, I, I love Quentin Tarantino for the fact that I can use his style to tell stories and and develop characters. Because when I'm doing stills photography, I want to be a storyteller. I want the viewer to look at my shot and know everything that's going on. There's like depths and layer. And so, you know, I hear people accuse like his movies of, well, they talk for too long. It's like, well, no, you don't understand. When when Jules and Vincent are talking about a foot massage for 10 minutes, that has relevance later on in the movie when Vincent takes uh, Mia Wallace to Jackrabbit Slims and then she accidentally snorts his heroin and dies because they were talking about the guy getting thrown off for a foot massage. Well, now she's just OD'd on drugs and Vincent Vega's like, oh shit, here I am. Like just all that stuff, it leads up into something greater. And so you know, if you don't under, if you don't, I mean, maybe you don't like it, that's fine, but there's absolute relevance to it. And that's one of the things that I love about Quentin Tarantino is the complexity that he builds his characters up. And, and he also, he's does, incredibly reliable too. He's reliable. But another thing that, uh, you know, cause he gets a lot of flack for, uh, his characters using the N word and he gets a lot of flack for like, uh, he got a lot of flack for Jennifer Jason Lee getting the shit beaten out of her in the hateful eight. And it's like, He's not writing in good people into his movies. He's writing in bad people. Bad people do bad things. And so that's why they were doing that. That's why he beat the shit out of Jennifer Jason Lee, because he's a bad person. And Quentin Tarantino writes that in. But I also love the fact that he doesn't care about revisionist history. It's like, I'm just going to kill Hitler. I'm just going to kill Charles Manson. Like, whatever. I love that. Yeah, I love that. I love the fact that he's like, he, you know, you, you don't sit there and fantasize about alternate endings. You could You could sit there... And you could take a picture or do a, 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 a short film about an alternate ending to something that happened in history. He just says, I'm going to do it. I think that's amazing. I think that's awesome. And, you know, I understand it. I, I, I get what he's going for there. And I think it's great. I think it's awesome. And like I said, when people like piss on Quentin Tarantino, it's like, why are you pissing on Quentin Tarantino? Like, like there are things that like, oh, well, that's not realistic. Yeah. Uh, you know, Beatrix Kiddo's taking a fucking samurai sword onto an airplane and flying with a samurai sword. No, you can't do that. But she yeah. does it in the movie and it makes it way cooler. It's uh, yeah. I love how Quentin Tarantino, he didn't like, he didn't let go of his childhood and he never, I don't think for one time did he ever inform or he, he never let the society or the world around him, uh, besides what he enjoyed, inform him on how he should make movies. Um, I think a lot of directors have allowed that to happen, and they've just are honestly shit these days. Uh, Guy Ritchie's f- movies suck. David Fincher's latest killer sucked. Uh, Napoleon, absolute garbage. <laughs> like, was I, Napoleon bad? I N- Napoleon was absolute like hot steaming shit. I mean, if you're watching a movie for the cinematography alone and just how people how people are lit. You know, fair enough, but like the Joker, absolute dog shit. Like not cinema. Um, You're talking about the one with um, with uh, Joaquin. Joaquin, I haven't seen it. Yeah, terrible. Um, yeah, a, a lot of directors are just making terrible movies. Oppenheimer, absolutely, just just so boring. Like glorified documentary, absolutely terrible. I uh, thought I thought Oppenheimer looked great. I thought the cinematography was great, but. I do think uh, some of it, and I, I know I'm going to get flack for that. We're going to get a bunch of downvotes here. Uh, I, I thought Oppenheimer was good. I, 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 you know, I think what it boils down to is that not as many great stories are being written these days. And so Oppenheimer is good compared to what else is out there right now. Like that's well, coming out in the big cinema, the big, because they're, they're spending so much money on comic book movies. You know, that's what they're, that's what they're allocating their budgets for. And there's not, not good movies. If, if you had the sound off, 
and and you decided to cut the movie in half uh and and take out a whole like like one genre of what the movie was whether it be the politics whether it be the love life or something um it would be a good movie but the fact of the matter is, is like these these like big name directors they're getting so like they're losing the art of cinema cinema there's no narrative in oppenheimer anymore there wasn't any narrative in napoleon it was just we're going to take a sequence of events that were all included in this person's life there's going to be almost no tension and you're not even like they don't actually develop the character it's it's terrible um like when I watched Napoleon and I watched Oppenheimer, they could have killed Napoleon and Oppenheimer in the first 10 minutes, in the first hour, and I wouldn't have cared because they don't develop it. Whereas, mm. like, you take you take Ridley Scott's, um, you take, yeah, you take Ridley Scott's earlier work. Um, Ridley Scott did Napoleon, right? That was, uh, yes, it was Ridley Scott. Yeah, so you take Ridley Scott's earlier work, like Gladiator, and yeah. part of narrative is your selection to omit. Hmm. In Gladiator, a lot was omitted to create a form of narrative. What was what was included? Very small bits of his family being murdered. What, what, what was the use of his family being murdered? To illustrate the character of who Maximus was. You had one battle scene. Why? To illustrate who he was as, as a leader and how much how his men respected him, how he how he uh, handled leading. But why? Because the rest of the movie he wasn't leading. You know, and so a lot was omitted and only specific things were kept in there to define this person who you root for almost right off the bat. But why does it inspire you to pick up a camera? <laughs> but um, Napoleon? No, 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 no. Oh. Gladiator. Gladiator inspires me to pick up a camera because, well, it doesn't necessarily. It, it inspires me to pick up a video camera. Okay, uh, fair because, enough. But yeah. but you're you're acknowledging that but, that was better work than his more recent work. Well, nothing is omitted in in all these like big like biopics that we're doing these days, except unless you're talking about my next favorite biopic movie, which is The Darkest Hour about Winston Churchill. Ba 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 ba. All right, let's put this guy on. So what really inspires me about this film is the way it's lit. Uh, I love these detail shots. I love the in incredibly, incredibly soft lighting. Everything is soft and everything is deliberate. They omit a lot and they include a lot of fast-paced scenes that depict very quick movements, very rapid things. There's no wasted space and it's not, the director isn't jerking himself off with, with oh, I'm going to hold this scene because it's artistic or I'm going to hold this incredible silence because it's artistic. Um, no, it's a very robust film and a lot of the shots are deliberate and that's the way I like to shoot. It's very easy as a photographer to fill a series of shots uh, with dead space, with a dead photo that uh, doesn't exactly tie relevance to anything else. And so I'd have to say that for this movie, the lighting is is absolutely A1 spectacular. Uh, you go from multiple shots of low dynamic range to high dynamic range. And, and it's interwoven really well. And I just really, really, really enjoy how incredible uh, the soft lighting is. Like right here, that ambience, that world building, the fall off of all the faces to the left uh, while maintaining a, you know, the, the, the peak lighting on the top crest of Churchill's hair there. It is, it is absolutely uh, fantastic. And I love the grade. Um, the grade is as important as the film itself in this and why. Uh, it won't necessarily be demonstrated in this clip, but the the entirety of the film is graded in red, white, and blue. Why? Because it's a British film illustrating one of uh, one of the greatest examples of British leadership in in a hundred years. Now I'm going to catch flack for that because a lot of people hate Churchill because they're like, oh, he's a, colon a colonist, he's a he's a drunk, he's a, you know he's a he's an opioid user. But all true, at, at the, <laughs> all, all all true. But I mean, I'll I'll fight back on that. I'm going to get absolutely shysted for this. Like. I don't, I don't know a single person who wasn't a colonist when, when, you know, back in those days, you know, we were just leaving the, yeah, well, the 19th century while, when empires were still well, just about there. Well, real quick on the side tangent, but, is we, we live in a world where you were either perfect or you were a hundred percent bad. You can't take some good things that people had plus their flaws. Yeah. You're either all or nothing, which is an unrealistic way to go about the world, but go ahead back to your Churchill. But yeah, back to my Churchill, um, this is graded in red, white, and blue. The British, obviously, the British flag colors, and it's absolutely fantastic. Napoleon was graded the same way. Is graded in red, white, and blue, uh, which is really interesting when it came to all the diplomatic things. Um, and it was actually lit, same as how this is lit. Um, they're lit to be like paintings. 
Why? Because there's a lot of, uh, in the, in the 17th and 18th century, a lot of the commission paintings were of parliamentary figures at their time. So Napoleon, uh, the movie is actually lit and graded to have extremely flat faces with extremely soft light. And it's all red, white, and blue, kind of similar to how these parliamentary shots are in Churchill. And it's meant to look like, like paintings. And so I find that incredible. So, um, Oftentimes when I'm doing my grading, this has inspired me to not only um, have a, a definitive grade, not just one that looks pretty, but also one that enhances the narrative of what I'm doing as well. Nice. Quick, quick, funny story about uh, Churchill. So Orson Welles uh, was on vacation somewhere in Europe with his wife and Churchill happened to be there at the same time. And Orson Welles was trying to get funding for a movie and he had some Russian oligarch person there with him. And he walked by Churchill, and Churchill knew who Orson Welles was, and he gave him a head nod. This was like right after Churchill lost his re-election bid, right after World War II. Yeah. Uh, not his best days. And the Russian guy was just beside himself, like, oh, my God, like, Winston Churchill knows you? He's like, yeah, yeah. He's like, all right, I'll fund your, I'll fund your movie. And so, like, later on that day, he's chilling out with Winston Churchill. They're like, whatever, on the beach, whatever. And he's like, hey, I just want to let you – I want to say thank you because you, 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 know, you gave me that head nod, and that actually got funding for my next film. And so he's with the Russian oligarch like the next day and he walks by Winston Churchill and Winston Churchill sees him and gives him a big bow. Like he just bows oh like that. My and gosh. then you know, and, and of course Orson Welles is laughing because he you know Churchill is like <laughs> buttering him up and making him look good. I just thought that was a funny story. He definitely got funded for that film then, you know. But uh, do you have any other uh, films you want to talk about before I get to my final? No, get to get to your final and I'll pull um, my last one. Uh I'm going to talk about my favorite film of all time, and I've gone through some. Well, yeah, I did. I did the Heat one already, so yeah, yeah we're good. Um, I'm gonna go. To, I'm gonna go through my favorite film of all time. There's not a word spoken in it. Uh, this film was the very first film ever converted to 8K. Uh, it was shot in 70 millimeter in 1992. Uh, they took 150,000 frames of 70 millimeter. I guess technically it was 65 millimeter film, and they scanned it one at a time. They restored it. And they, they haven't, it was, like I said, the very first thing ever put into 8K, and that was the 1992 masterpiece, Baraka. And if you've never seen Baraka, you need to see Baraka because it, because it is, in my opinion, the most beautifully shot film in the history of cinema. And that is a bold claim, and I will fight anybody to the death on it. <laughs> but um, this is the most humbling movie in the entire world, in my opinion. Uh, I majored in college in uh, geography, uh, so they make you study the, the earth. They make you study the human beings' interaction with the earth. And this movie is the quintessential capturing of that. And the score in this is absolutely spectacular. The color grading in this is absolutely spectacular. And the scenes are just insane. The uh, darkest parts of humanity, the lightest parts of humanity are all captured in this movie. If you want, if you want like oil fields burning and the boneyard out in, near Tucson with all the old airplanes in it, you go to Kuwait, it takes you everywhere. Uh, they take you to Auschwitz. They take you to the killing fields of the Khmer Rouge. They take you to uh, – it was shot in 24 countries, six continents. They take you to India. They show bodies burning. They show people bathing in the in the rivers. Uh, they show beautiful time lapses. Um, this is, in my opinion, the greatest uh, movie ever made, uh, in my opinion, as far as just sitting down and watching it. If you ever want to uh, just recalibrate in life – you know, you're going through some tough times and you just want to have some humble pie and, you know, see how uh, see how you fit in the world. Uh, I recommend no other film greater than Barack, uh, Barack, I almost said Barack, Barack Obama, Barack, ah, Baraka. that's the name of the film, Baraka. Uh, and Baraka is actually a, um, a word uh, that they use in uh, Islam. It means... Blah, 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 blah. Blessing, essence, or breath. Uh, Robert Ebert, uh, he, he said about this, that if man sends another Voyager into the distant stars and it can carry only one film on board, that film might be Baraka. It is basically like, this is our Earth. This is how the humans live on the Earth. Here are the animals. Here are the beautiful parts of the world. Here are the bad parts of the world. This is just an objective view of humanity, 
humanity's interaction with Mother Earth. And if you haven't seen Baraka, I actually find there are some streams of it on YouTube. And as much as I butter this movie up and say it's the greatest movie of all time, they actually made a follow-up to this movie in uh, 2011 that I haven't seen. It's called Samsara. So I'm going to go see Samsara and get back to you all on that. And you're going to go see Heat, and you're going to get back to me on that because you have no fucking choice. Now, uh, we're going to wrap up with Brandon's favorite last movie, and then we're going to call it a day. Go ahead, Brandon. Well, my favorite last movie is one that I was introduced to in college. Uh, it came out in 1929, and it was by a a prominent socialist named Ziga Vertov. It's called Man with a Moving Camera. It's Chelovek Skino Aparatum. And so this came out as, as an antithesis to the idea of montage. Um, uh, Eisenstein came, uh, really revolutionized and pioneered montage, the use of using two separate clips to synthesize a third idea that is not of those clips. Um, so one example would be first, first clip is you see a man looking out the window. Second clip would be a child playing out in the street. And you would assume that that man is looking at the child, even though there's no logical reason that that should be the case. Um, and antithetically, Ziga Vertov wanted to show the world for what it really was with a camera. And so he fought this idea of montage and he put together this movie called Man with a Movie Camera. <clears throat> and he wanted to show the everyday life of, of the world around him. And he did so using montage. It's not one, one ongoing clip, so it's inescapable. And so I thought, uh, I thought it was very interesting. And so here we go. This is this is man with a movie camera, and as as you can see, that's that's them shooting right there. They're on a car, and they're just capturing the everyday life. It is the antithesis of world building, um, and yet by virtue of it being montage, inavoidably by by virtue of it being an actual movie, um, it is world building in and of itself because they're still depicting a non-realistic view of the world. Now, what's also really interesting about this is. Uh, back then, the the socialist idea was to elevate uh, elevate man uh, by technical processes. By you know, it was the it was the materialist idea of uh, tabula rasa, where your environment shapes who you are. And so, given that mindset, a lot of artists at this time were incredibly uh, they liked to take images of mechanization of processes. They didn't like to isolate uh, single people. They didn't like to glorify the individual. It was all about the masses. It was all about the the giant machine that was the USSR at the time. And that's what they were trying to depict, not necessarily for the sake of propaganda, but to depict life as it really was in an objective view, um, uh, sort of sort of to define a truth of, of the greater system at hand. And so uh, he put this together. Um, wanted to depict reality. See, as you can as you can see here, he's basically just uh, depicting what the real life was. Um, everything super anonymous, uh, very very m- metaphorically motivated in terms of motifs: adolescence, adulthood, struggle, happiness. Here, um, there are no characters, there are no protagonists, there are no antagonists. There is only cinema reality, the world around us, and uh, the processes, the mechanizations in which all of it uh, cohabitates. And so that's why in the middle of this movie, there is a spinning machine. That's actually uh, Ziga Vertov's wife cutting the, the film that we're seeing now, ironically. And that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to illustrate just ongoing process. He didn't want even the behind the scenes to be left out of this film because he didn't, he hated the idea of montage synthesis. He couldn't stand the idea of creativity. Like I said, he's a staunch socialist. He wanted reality to be cold, hard, materialist reality. And he wanted to elucidate that in his cinema. So is this, uh, would you say that this film has had a profound impact on like how you shoot street or how you shoot environmental portraiture? In what ways does this uh, film impact you as a photographer? It impacts me because it is antithetical to how I operate as a person, and so it kind of pushes me to go beyond the bounds. I think I think a human being's personal experience um, elucidated in uh, through the narrative form of of photography is very crucial, and this forces me to take 
take a step back and go, huh, an objective view with no strict subject can also be important. It just said that Heat was the next upcoming movie on there. Is <laughs> it is, listening to you? Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is you didn't select it, right? I didn't select it. Okay, so the YouTube algorithms are going crazy. Uh, they are definitely listening because we talked about Heat, and he, was, he had one of his uh, examples up, and it said, next up, Heat. So I think that's uh, I think that is an omen, a good omen, right? I think I have to watch it now. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think that you need to watch Heat. And if you're watching this and you haven't seen the movie Heat, you should go check it out as well. And now we're gonna wrap up today's episode. Yes, that does it for today's episode. We thank each and every one of you for listening, for watching. Um, you can check us out at F11pod. You can check us out with the handle F11Pod on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, Obviously, there was a lot to go over today. We're still fine-tuning the video side of things, but I think that this was going to be an awesome episode. I think we did really well today. Uh, Hopefully, you learned a little bit about what influences us as photographers slash videographers. And until next time, chase light and not algorithms. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For more information about this podcast, go to www.f11pod.com.